Jane Perone, and this is On The Ledge, breathing life into your houseplants since 2017. How are you diddling? I am in a state between heaven and hell, twas ever thus, but possibly slightly tilting towards hell this week after facing my first ever infestation of thrips. Hmm, I think there's an episode coming up on this soon because the little so-and-sos have sent me into a tailspin, but I will not be defeated. The thrips are on the retreat and I shall have the upper hand. Oh yes, I shall. In this week's show, I'm on a mission to help you rescue moth orchids that look like they're on their way out. And joining me is orchid revival expert Terry Richardson, a.k.a. the Black Thumb, to offer up all his expertise. And I answer a question about large plants for a big loft space. Before that, this. Thank you to Mary Bain in Bulgaria for leaving a lovely review for On The Ledge, describing the show as the best podcast ever to exist. I do love that kind of hyperbole. I'm living for it. Thank you to Mary Bain. And to new superfan Sonia, who joined this week, unlocking extra content and as a super van she also gets an exclusive mail out which will be winging its way to you soon Sonia. If you want to find out more about how to get hold of those extra episodes there's more than 60 of them now visit the show notes at janeperone.com or just go to patreon.com forward slash on the ledge. A reminder now I am still after your Peans of praise for Dr. David Hesseon, author of The Houseplant Expert, The Bible We All Still Love After All These Years, or perhaps we're newcomers to it. But either way, this book is the holy grail of houseplants. So if you love this book and you want to say something about why and how you love it, then I need your voice in an upcoming episode devoted to this book and its author. Just drop a voice memo to ontheledgepodcast.gmail.com. It can be anything from 15 seconds to a couple of minutes long. Just make sure you include your name and where you are, and you could be hearing your voice alongside that of a certain Mr. James Wong. If you really, really don't want to record your voice, then you can just send me an email and I will read out your contribution. So please do get those to me in the next week or so, so you can be included in that show. And the On The Ledge So Along continues to power ahead. I've been really enjoying looking at your posts on social media. What's growing on in the Czech Republic is growing Syningia and Epiphyllum babies, and they're looking pretty good. They're still teensy-tinesy, but oh so cute. And in Montana, Danny has been getting her loop out to look at her tiny cacti seedlings. They're so cute. She's got Mammillaria. She's got a Chilean cactus mix. And she's got Mammiloidia as well. And they're just so adorably small and 
covered in spines. So well done for that, Danny. Finally, on Instagram, Lucid Magic Leaves has teeny tiny Alocasia poly seedling, which is adorable. I'm wondering if you grew that from a rhizome from your main plant. I'm guessing that's how it's worked, but let me know, Lucid Magic Seeds. But anyway, whichever, well done. And over on Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge, Bobby is looking for some advice on growing orchids from seed, if anyone can help Bobby out. And Holly has been going great guns with propagating for the sew-along. There's dwarf pomegranate, monstera, hypoestes, philodendron, celloum, radamacara, and, well, what looks like loads more. I reckon that the there's some good signs of growth there on those pictures, Holly, so well done to you. And it's not too late to get involved in the Sew Along. Do go back and listen to the Sew Along episodes. I'll put a link to those in the show notes and let me know how you are getting on. And do keep us up to date with what you're doing. Just use hashtag OTL Along in all your posts so I can pick up on them. Where did you source your Phalaenopsis orchids, the moth orchid? Maybe you pick one up with your shopping at the supermarket, go to a garden centre or even a specialist grower. But have you checked the local dumpsters recently? That's where Terry Richardson (laughs) finds most of his fowls, the short term for these ubiquitous and oh-so-popular orchids. Terry is an expert at reviving miserable moth orchids and bringing them back to full health and full flower. So I gathered your questions and picked his brains. What's going on, Jane? My name is Terry Richardson, also known as the Orchid Whisperer and the Black Thumb, and I rescue and revive orchids from dumpsters in in my local neighborhood. Well, you've immediately piqued my interest, Terry. Tell me more about dumpster diving for orchids. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's actually pretty hilarious that this is even a thing. So, you know, in the States, typically like spring is really like big orchid. It's like a big orchid season. So they're gifted all over the place. They're in all of the flower shops, grocery stores, everywhere. And typically around the end of spring, early summer... A lot of folks who just don't know what, you know, that an orchid is kind of a living, breathing organism that continues to grow cyclically. Once the flowers drop, a lot of people will say, oh, this must be dead. And so they drop them off at dumpsters. And uh, that's actually how I got started with orchid rescuing was I found one randomly at our dumpster here at our apartment complex and um, took it in. And uh, 18 months later... It flowered and it just like completely opened up my world to orchids and the possibilities with with them. So, yeah. So ever since I've been I've been dumpster diving for orchids. (laughs) I love that. I mean, I am such a fan of the free plant, you know, however it comes to you, whether it's a swap or like I've never even thought of doing that. But I have heard listeners in the past say, oh, yeah, I just saw this plant on the side of the road. I wish that happened to me more often. I know exactly what you mean about people treating orchids as something just a disposable thing that they could just get rid of 
And it's such a shame because they're such tough plants, really, which is why you can revive them. How did you go on from there after your first success with this dumpster orchid? Yeah, I mean, really from there, I just started to take a deeper dive into what like what it really took to keep them alive and to bring them back. I mean, I was literally flying by the seat of my pants with, with the first orchid that I that I rescued. And then as I started to, you know, make it known that this was something that I was doing, it's amazing how many people will gift you orchids. I mean, I've been gifted so many orchids from my wife's patients, from coworkers, from friends, family. So yeah, so it's it's actually been a really nice way for me to kind of be a little bit of a mad scientist because I have so many orchids I can kind of tinker with certain different types of media, different types of fertilizing, and it's really kind of helped me grow in my ability to to revive them and and to find a good system that works for you know in, in particular phalaenopsis orchids so it's been it's been a, a really cool journey what we're here to do today is hopefully to do some virtual rescue of listeners orchids that have suffered from <laughs> perhaps from neglect perhaps from just not having quite the right care regime so i asked listeners for questions and we've had a great clutch of questions come in so i want to crack straight on with some of these because this is the real good stuff we need to know how to take care of these plants how to bring them back from the brink i've had a fair few orchids over the years that i've neglected and it is amazing how you can bring them back but ideally it's nice to just keep them in in good condition all year round if you can and that's what you're here to tell us about Uh, let's crack on first question comes from christina and this is an interesting one i don't know if you know the answer to this it's to do with the scent of Mm. phalaenopsis or rather the lack of and christina says that when she had orchids in the 1990s very few were fragrant but she's noticed that there's increasing talk of fragrant phalaenopsis and she's wondering if this is a new thing that's coming through with hybridization that breeders are specifically looking for scent to add to their phalaenopsis do you have you heard that yourself Yeah, I mean, because that was one of the things when I first started getting into orchids, that was one of the big questions that I had was like, why, why don't more Phalaenopsis orchids have a scent? Or why don't many of the orchids that I owned have a have a fragrance or a scent? And Christina is actually right. There has been a conscious effort by growers um, really around the world to basically hybridize scents and fragrances into uh, Phalaenopsis orchids because they're one of, they're probably the most popular orchid definitely here in the States. And let's just be real, like who doesn't like to have a house of flowers that is, that is creating like this beautiful fragrance and really kind of, you know, giving, you know, contributing to the atmosphere within, within that space. Plus one of the things that I also found is, is that, you know, if you look at the price tag for just your general run of the mill Phalaenopsis compared to one that, that has a specific fragrance, there's definitely a difference in price. And so, so it's not, you know, necessarily, I mean, yes, the growers do want to continue to kind of push the envelope as it pertains to, you know, creating beauty and, and contributing to that through, through orchids. But they also, they also understand that it, it does help their bottom line as well. So, so yeah, they're definitely, you know, in the research that I've done, there definitely has been a conscious effort uh, to to increase the fragrant or the the variety of fragrances in phalaenopsis orchids particularly i guess that gives you the whole package doesn't it it gives you the flowers and the scent which is what people are looking for are that, this is my own question are there any phalaenopsis that have 
interesting leaves. I don't know if you're a variegation fan, but you know, variegation's so big right now. Is anyone trying to breed variegation into Phalaenopsis leaves or is that a bridge too far? You know, uh, to be honest, I'm I'm not 100% on that. I will have to do some more research on that one and get back to you on that one, Jane. Yeah, maybe any, any listeners have spotted some variegated Phalaenopsis leaves because that's one of the reasons that I've recently got into um, Paphiopedalums, the, the slipper orchids, because I like the cool cool looking leaves but i mean i'm sure somebody s- somewhere is up up to some variegation with phalaenopsis you know it's such a huge area of breeding but maybe a listener will be able to educate us on that let's talk roots i think this is probably the one thing that freaks people out the most about phalaenopsis are those roots which can be a little bit frightening <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had a dumpster orchid which has literally just been back to its roots that you've managed to revive? Can you revive Phalaenopsis just from the roots if all the leaves have died? Yeah, you can. Actually, it's so funny you asked that question, Jane. I literally just got a direct message from one of my followers on Instagram who sent me a picture of a foul orchid that she has that literally had no leaves but had a good root system and just started to sprout a new leaf. So really like your roots are, they are the main source of nutrients collecting, so to speak, for your orchids. And if you have a strong root system in many situations, provided you're, you're, you're putting it and putting it in a, in a position or in the right environment, you should be able to revive that orchid. I mean, orchids are pretty resilient. That's the, one of the biggest things that I've learned over the last few years working with them. Is that, you know, if you find the right environment for them and you are consistent when you're in your watering and fertilizing and all of those things, they will do very, very well for you. But yes, the root system is one of the most important aspects of the plant. And if you have a good, strong root system, yes, in general, you can keep the party going. And should those roots, they often kind of tend to go off on their own way outside the pot and start escaping the pot. Adrienne got in touch because... She's worried about how often to repot her orchids and she's wondering whether it's wrong to have lots of air roots that are poking out outside the substrate. Should she be cutting those off or poking them back into the soil or repotting? Do they need to be in the substrate? Yeah, so that's a, that's another great question. And that's the beautiful thing about orchids is the roots can be in the substrate and they can be outside of the substrate. So they're going to be gathering nutrients Um, regardless of whether they're in the substrate or outside of the substrate. You know, one of the really popular things to do with orchids right now is to mount them on, you know, different pieces of wood, and they become really kind of nice decorative, you know, conversation pieces in your home. But to answer her question, typically you want to repot your orchid every 12 to 18 months. You can even go up to two years. And when you're repotting, you want to, you, you want to stay about one to two inches, or you want to upgrade about one to two inches in diameter. Um, because orchids kind of like to be, you know, snug in their, in their pots. They don't like to have a ton of room to grow, but you do want to give them a little bit of room to, to stretch out a little bit and to grow into that pot. As far as air roots being outside of the substrate, anytime you have air roots that are growing above the, the potting media or the substrate in your pot, to me, I see that as a good sign that your orchid is going through the natural kind of cyclical life cycle, essentially, that it is getting, it is continuing to move into the next phase, which is increasing your chances 
of growing a flowering spike. Because essentially a lot of those roots that are in the substrate, a lot of those roots are going to eventually die off. And so you want to be, you want to make sure that your orchid is constantly replacing, basically replenishing and replacing itself with new air roots, which are typically going to kind of grow out of those you know, those, those, the higher portions of your, um, of your rhizome, if you will, and will essentially continue to contribute and collect nutrients through the air, actually, which is really cool. I guess this is the heritage of orchids. These orchids as epiphytes, they're used to that environment where they're just reaching out and they might hit another branch of the tree and support themselves might access nutrients and water and so on exactly and do not cut your air roots like don't don't cut it that is all like air (laughs) roots are always a good sign that your plant is doing well and, and that it's healthy and what should you be looking for when you're looking at a healthy root as opposed to one that's just come out of a, d- a dumpster dive? There are a couple of things that will give you an indication of whether or not your roots are, are, are healthy and viable. Number one is when you water them, they typically will go from almost like a, a light, it's like a light greenish, almost white color to a deeper green. Um, they also feel nice and firm and turgid, whereas a dead root will be really flimsy. It'll almost feel hollow to the touch and when it's really dry they break and they crack pretty easily the other thing that you want to look for too to see how your roots are progressing to to see how healthy they are typically if you notice um, a lot of air roots they'll have they'll start off kind of like that that whitish gray color as they're coming out but then at the very very tips you'll notice that there's and there's some variation with this that some some roots have really like kind of almost like bright green like lime green tips and then some have like a deeper almost kind of like purplish or maroon color and typically the longer or the more of the root that is those kind of lime green or those purplish maroonish tips that also is an indicator of health as well and so when you're watering your orchids especially for the roots that are outside of the potting media or the substrate you want to make sure that you are also watering those those roots as well to keep them nice and firm to keep them healthy because they are also contributing to the overall health and well-being of your plant run me through the health check that a new rescue orchid that comes into you or you manage to pick up what are you doing when you first get it obviously Number one, you're checking those roots. What else are you doing to assess the health of, of that rescued plant? The first thing that I, I do, like like you said, Jane, is I check for the I check the root system to see if it's viable, to see if there are any signs of root uh, of, of rot in the roots. The next thing I'm gonna look at is I'm gonna look at the leaves and I'm gonna look in, in particular in kind of the crown of the orchid and underneath the leaves because that's where pests like to hide. And then from there, you know, it's really just kind of making an assessment as to whether or not this is something I feel is going to be worth my time, right? Because there have been orchids that I've come across where it's like, okay, there's really, there's nothing viable here. So, so there's no reason for me to bring this into my home. And then when I do, when I do decide, okay, yes, the, you know, it checks the, it, the, the roots check are good. The leaves are good. And even if there are some minor pests like, you know, mealybugs or, or fungus gnats or something like that, I know that that's something that I can, that I can handle. And so, so, so I'm intentional about, you know, when I bring that orchid in, but also making sure that if you need to quarantine that orchid for a week or two until you, you know, either get, you know, deal with those, those pests or just to make sure that it is going to be, 
healthy and happy in your home, that's kind of the checklist that I run through. But generally, you want to look at your roots. You want to look, look at the leaves, crown of the orchid, and underneath the leaves. Um, and, then, and then you want to just basically make sure that you're checking for pests. And those leaves should be sort of non-wrinkly, how do we how, how do we tell look tell a really healthy leaf does it generally have of some bounce to it or some leatheriness to it i'm trying to think about texture and um so you want your leaves to be to be firm and turgid as well they will have a little bit of a bounce to them so if you kind of flick them they should come back and then return to their original position if the leaves are are really like leathery that typically is an indication that the orchid is dehydrated and lacking um, nutrients in some in some form or fashion. Typically, uh, it just needs a little bit more water. And so, I mean, we can talk about a technique on how to rehydrate. Let's go for that because I've got somebody who's got this exact problem. Lynn got in touch to say that the leaves of her orchid are limp and that she's assuming that it needs water. But she says it's pretty wet right now and Maybe she's wondering if it's too wet. But let's start with the assumption that this is a really dried out orchid. Um, because uh, and we can you know look at the substrate and see that's really dry is it just a question of chucking water at it every day until it feels better or is there a more a better regimen for it there's a particular rehydration tech that that i like to use and i've used uh pretty successfully with 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 a number of orchids over the last couple of years and this regimen i actually have a a tutorial video of this on my youtube channel so so anyone that's listening can check that out if they're having this problem but essentially what you do is you take your orchid out of its original pot you remove all of the old potting media you remove all of the dead roots um, anything that's not viable on the plant and then from there you're gonna make a distilled water and black tea um, solution and essentially what the distilled water and the black tea or really the black tea is going to do is it is going to essentially replicate what it's like for an orchid to get a fresh rain in in its you know in its natural habitat and so it's going to increase the tannic acid within the orchid which is going to stimulate root growth it's going to stimulate leaf growth um, but it's also going to rejuvenate and revitalize the orchid i actually have um one of my orchids um chad actually was super dehydrated a friend of mine uh uh, gifted me her orchid after she had been able to get it to flower year after year after year and then she ran into a spell where it was just really re dehydrated and so I'd used this technique and I think I did that maybe last summer and now Chad is flowering like living his best life and so so that is one way to do it and you'll start to notice the effect of this rehydration method um, you should start to notice you know the the benefits of this over a week or so and so essentially what you do is once you create your solution you literally sow the roots in it and you're gonna leave it in that solution all day and then you're gonna take it out of that solution and you know let it let it dry out and air out overnight and then you repeat that process every day until you feel like your orchid has bounced back. And then once it's bounced back, then you repot it in a new pot. And then from there, you continue with your with your regular scheduled kind of orchid care from your watering schedule and whatever fertilizing and, and, and whatever environment you think it's going to thrive best in in your home. And then you just kind of have a little patience and hope for the best. I've, you know, coined it spa week, essentially. So it's like a it's like a spa. It's spa week for your orchids, essentially. And is it possible to overwater these plants? Lynn's worried that she's got hers is too wet. 
I mean, in a lot of plants, overwatering can cause those same wilting symptoms as underwatering. Is that the case with uh, fowls? Absolutely. I would say one of the one of the number one reasons why orchids and, and Phalaenopsis orchids in particular don't make it is because of overwatering. So I think it's it's important when you're watering to be intentional about how you're how you're going about it and really understanding the different potting medias or substrates and how they how they retain water um, can really be a, a useful tool in how you how you go about you know fostering a healthy environment for your orchid. So so yes, overwatering especially and and I really see it in orchids that are using uh you know a sphagnum moss or some type of moss substrate because moss tends to absorb water and hold water for longer periods of time. So if you're just saying, you know what, I'm going to water this once a week every week without really un- having a good understanding of the type of potting media that you have, then yes, you could definitely be putting yourself in a position where overwatering your orchid um, is is a strong possibility. So one of the one of the things, if you want to be super specific about when to order uh, when to water your orchid, you should kind of let it dry out over you know a week or ten days or however long it takes for your orchid to 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 kind of dry out, um, depending on the size of the pot and and the size of the orchid, and then before you water it the next time. If you have a scale, whether it's a small scale, big scale, doesn't matter, put it on the scale and weigh it and see how much, you know, how much weight it has. Then go ahead and water it. Then put it back on the scale and you see how much weight it has. And then you can kind of periodically over the course of a week, seven days, 10 days, you can reweigh it and then also kind of check the firmness of your leaves. Check to see, and if it's flowering, check to see how your flowers are responding. Check to see how your roots are responding during that time. And then you can kind of gauge, okay, you know, let's say an orchid is, I don't know, like two pounds after you water it, but it'll go all the way down to, you know, maybe one pound when you need to water it. And you can kind of play with that range. And that's just a more specific way for you to water it so that you, pre- and it prevents you from overwatering as well. Oh, that's a really good tip. I think that's one of those ones for people who like the sort of scientific approach, but I can see how that would <laughs> would really help you to get a gauge of uh, how much water your plant needs and, and uh, how it's responding to that watering. So that's, that is excellent information. And do you give any special water or is it just tap water, rainwater? What do you use on your fowls? Yeah, so for the most part, I use tap water, but I also do collect rainwater. I mean, I live in Southern California where, I mean, I think we've gotten like two days of rain so far this year, which is like, which is, which is not good. <laughs> not, not good. But yeah, but I mean, yes, tap water is fine, is, is typically fine. I, you know, I would always kind of, you know, I, every, every city is a little different as far as their quality of water. So, so, you know, if, if you, if you know that you're, you know, that you're, that your local tap water isn't the best, then you may want to try like a distilled water, um, or, or, or something like that. But also, I mean, I think anytime you can use rainwater, whether you've collected it or whether, whether you get a reasonable amount of rainfall in your, in your local area, like, I think that's always going to be the best because that's, you know, that's, that's basically replicating or recreating, how orchids thrive and survive in their natural habitat. I just like the idea of giving them rainwater. It feels like I'm giving them the sort of the plant equivalent of a fine wine. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be 
with Terry shortly, but now it's time for the question of the week. And it comes from Foller, who is in Manchester. And Foller is an upholsterer. What a fascinating job. I need you right round the corner from me, Foller. Please, can you move down to Bedfordshire immediately? (laughs) Anyway, assuming that's not possible, Foller has secured a lovely space on the fourth floor of a mill and wants to get some plants in there naturally and follows sent some pictures of this space it's wonderful and airy and large as you would imagine but that does present some issues it's going to get very cold in the winter at night time and it could get very very hot in the summer it's a big space so the plants need to be able to hold their own in that airy expanse so what should follow choose so far Euphorbia candelabra and Eritrea have come onto the scene along with some Sansevieria and a castor royal plant but Follow wants to know if there's anything else I would recommend and of course I have some ideas I am never short of an opinion (laughs) as well you know I think that the choices that Follow's made so far are excellent those Euphorbias will do absolutely fine with nighttime drops in temperature provided it doesn't get frozen they're going to be absolutely fine I was also wondering about a Sparmania africana. Now, this is the African hemp plant, which will be fine down to about eight degrees centigrade, which is about 46 Fahrenheit. The only problem with that is really going to be getting hold of one. They're not plants that you see that often. So have a look around. You may even be able to get some seed for that one. But it's a plant that's often was popular in big country houses, big drafty country houses. You would be uh, growing African hemp. They get big. They've got big hairy leaves and they also flower. I've talked about them in the show before, but do check them out. Follow. I think they'd be a great addition. I also think that a Monstra Deliciosa, our old friend, the Swiss cheese plant, would be absolutely fine. You know, these plants are tougher than we tend to think. I am thinking about a picture that I've seen of Matisse's studio with absolutely huge specimens of Monstra Deliciosa in there. What a muse that would be for your work. And of course, easy to get hold of and relatively cheap. And they could fill that huge space if they're happy. I have also read in our favourite book, the houseplant expert, that you can grow bay trees indoors. Now, that's an interesting idea, not something I've ever tried, but in that tall ceiling space, it might look quite good if you had a standard bay tree. I've got a couple of standard bays in my garden on the patio. I think the challenge would probably be keeping it on the right side of moisture in the winter. You want it to be probably quite dry, but not too dry. So, yeah, that would be an experiment that you'd have to try. And I'd probably start out with a small bay plant because that way it can grow and adapt to the circumstances rather than having a big bay, which then dies on you and has cost you a lot of money. I also think that a large jade tree, Crassula ovata, would be a good choice. Now, these are quite expensive to buy at the size that you'd need. However, I have seen them come up quite often on things like Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist and the like, because people, when they're moving house, oftentimes decide they cannot take their huge jade plant with them. So that's an opportunity to pick up a gut bargain. So do look that out. The reason why I think jade plants are good is that once they get to that tree size, they are very, very tough. They can take 
cool temperatures provided that the light is strong enough foller so get them by the window and I think a jade tree would be a really good choice and also look really stunning I'm sure you'll be able to pair it with a with a really good pot and that way you get instant impact which is what you're looking for in that large space I mean I think the key to this issue is just finding those large specimen plants that won't be swamped by the space or if you can't afford to buy big plants, massing plants together. I'm thinking, as, as I often do, about the trough of snake plants, Sansevierias, at the entrance to Don's apartment in Mad Men. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I'll put a picture in the show notes or a link to a picture so you can take a look at that. A trough with full of snake plants always looks amazing, is super, super tough, will be absolutely fine in those conditions. And it, it just has much more impact than an individual plant in a pot. And if you've got that space, why not use it? Follow, I hope those suggestions have provided you with at least a starting point for your plans. Do keep me posted. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line on theledgepodcast at gmail.com. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. And now it's time to head back to our chat with Terry for more orchid rescue tips. I now want to come on to the rather potentially controversial subject of substrate. Wayne wants to know sphagnum moss or bark and also wants to know about semi-hydro using Laker. Now I've said on the show before that semi-hydro is totally unknown to me. I've never done it. Um, I think people either tend to be crazy for that particular method or not really very into it at all just because they've not tried it. Well, what's your take on orchid substrates? Yeah, so so I think sphagnum moss, bark medias, coconut husk, you know, lava rocks or leca, as a lot of people like to call them. I think all of those are really great options. I think a lot of it is really just kind of up, up to your own kind of personal lifestyle and kind of where you are in your growth and development as an orchid parent, essentially. So I, I would say if you are the person who's super busy doesn't really have a ton of time to, you know, to be watering a bunch of plants, including your orchid. I would say the sphagnum moss is a really great option. Um, I would also say LECA is is a really great option because, you know, you fill you fill your, you know, your reservoir, your vessel um, with with water. And in a lot of situations, you do have to treat it because it's, you know, LECA is, is it's pH neutral. So you do have to supplement some of the some of the nutrients that the orchid will need to thrive. Um, but those tend to be a lot less maintenance because sphagnum moss, again, is going to hold that moisture um, a little bit longer. And, you know, LECA is going to be essentially using kind of an evaporation model to, you know, and, and really kind of soaking it through almost through osmosis, through the through the LECA balls, if you will, to feed your your roots as they need more water. So so those are kind of ways that you can leverage 
you know, leverage the potting media and, and let it work for you for longer periods of time. The thing with sphagnum moss, though, is that you can for sure overwater a lot more quickly than some of the other potting media. So that's something that you definitely have to, to be on the lookout for, which obviously can increase your risk of root, of root rot. But, you know, for me personally, I prefer bark. You know, I, I prefer just like a, your standard bark media for a couple of reasons. Number one, you get a little bit more airflow. And I think, you know, orchids tend to be, even though they... They love to be in, in high humid environments. I think it's better to keep the roots a little bit on the drier side than on the like, I'm. it's always, always wet. And so bark is just going to give you a little bit more airflow. And because our air roots like to take nutrients from the air, whether it's through humidity or just through different particles that are that are being floated around, I think that bark is a, is a good option as well. But with the bark, it will likely require a little bit more watering. So so for my for my orchids that are in bark, I find that I'm typically even even in the cold months or the colder months. There aren't really cold months here in California, in Southern California, but when it's a little bit colder, I find that um, that I'm still watering them every seven to ten days. Whereas you know for my orchids that might be in sphagnum moss, I could potentially go you know you know especially in the colder months you know two weeks sometimes even three weeks you know just kind of making but making sure that i'm paying close attention to to how that spat to how the moss and how the medium and the roots and everything is is interacting together but i mean moral of the story is is i think it's really kind of up to to your lifestyle and and really what you what level of responsibility you want to kind of take with your orchid but all of those are really good options and and as far as leka like that's something that i've recently started to kind of do some research on and started to get into so um so i'm still learning a lot in that regard as well but but the more i'm finding out about leka <clears throat> the more i really really do like how it, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a kind of set it and forget it for sometimes weeks at a time, depending on the size of your vessel and, and how big your reservoir is. I think that's something like like you, I'm kind of really only at the beginning of, of researching Lekka. I guess uh, I can see the appeal and I guess it's just a question of whatever substrate you're using, understanding how that choice of substrate is going to affect your treatment of the plant, which is the the key thing. One other substrate, Colleen got in touch, and I've never heard of this before, but she has been looking at the option of using wine corks cut up as as a medium for orchids. Have you ever heard of that? I mean, I can kind of see the logic of it in that it's in the materials, not that dissimilar to coconut husk or something. But have you ever heard of that? No, n not at all. So this this question was actually like, oh, man, let me look this up. <laughs> and, you know, like, to be honest, like, it's funny, like orchids will, for the most part, grow in just about anything as long as they have good airflow so that the roots can can take up that water and then slowly dissipate it over over time and in between waterings. As long as the roots aren't being suffocated, then for the most part, they will grow in anything. So like I, I actually think that's a great idea. And that's a, especially if you're drinking a lot of wine in your home, like that's a great way to that's a great way to be, you know, sustainable, you know. So 
So yeah, I, I think I think that's great. I mean, I don't drink that much wine these days, and I'm not really a connoisseur. So most of mine comes with screw tops. So I'm not sure I'm going to have enough. I'll have to go around like finding old uh, corks. But I think it's an as you say, orchids will grow in anything that's kind of going to anchor them and allow things to be free draining. So yeah, I think if it, uh, I mean, Colleen wanted to know if she should add some moss. I suppose adding some moss would increase the absorption levels. Right. Uh, and and then it's just a question of knowing uh, if you were using poor, pure corks, I guess it would probably need quite frequent watering as opposed to if you chuck in some moss, you're giving yourself a bit more leeway. But, well, we, we'll have to find out more from Colleen about these experiments because uh, she's given it a try. Uh, but it, I'm, yeah. I'm very intrigued by that one. So that there's always something new to learn, isn't there? Absolutely. And that's the coolest thing about like this journey for me is that even though I've been doing this for a few years, I still feel like I'm such a newbie in a lot of respects. So, uh, so yeah, so it's, it, this, is, this, was, this was a great exercise in like, oh, that's cool. I haven't really heard of that. <laughs> or like, oh, let me, let me look this up. Should I be doing this? You know? <laughs> just, I just had a similar experience experience today that I thought I've heard of every possible fungus gnat treatment. And then I saw someone tweeting saying, oh, apparently bounce dryer sheets are good for repelling fungus gnats. And I'm like, yeah, right. And then I I googled it and I've literally come across research from a a pest expert who I've had on the show talking about researching this very thing and that it does actually work. So what? Consider me, right. consider me absolutely dumbstruck by that one. Apparently, it's down to the um, the the dryer sheets contain something called linalool, and that's what repels the fungus gnat. So, I'm going to be going, buying me some dryer sheets. <laughs> yeah, same, same here, and it'll make your house smell clean. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, like sign me up. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's crack on with these questions. We've got also a question about the container. We've talked substrate, but the container is also important. And this again seems to be something that splits growers. Do you go for a terracotta pot with lots of holes? One of those fancy orchid pots or an old-fashioned plastic pot or indeed a clear plastic pot seems to be what they're mostly sold in in this country anyway what's the best option yeah i would say i mean me personally i prefer terracotta i think terracotta pots are are really great of of really kind of retaining enough moisture like in the pot so that it will extend some of your watering times without increasing your risk of root rot. So so I really do like the terracotta pot option, but I also I mean plastic pots are just fine. I mean orchids do just fine in plastic pots. I have a I have a number of of orchids that are in plastic pots right now. Um, and I think for, for those, I think it's just really about making sure that those pots have adequate drainage. And as long as they have adequate drainage and they're in a place in your home where they can get good, you know, kind of moisture evaporation, then I think I think they're just fine. I think they're both just fine, to be completely honest. But I prefer terracotta, if I'm being honest. Visually, I can see the reasons for that. I'm guessing lots of the plants that you, that you rescue are coming in the the plastic pot that they were sold in. And then I guess once you've decided whether that plant's going to make it or not, you can you give it, dedicate it to a fancy pot. <laughs> to a fancy pot. pot, exactly. And oh yeah, that's that was what I was going to say about plastic pots or clear plastic pots in particular. The advantage of having a clear plastic pot is that the roots actually, they photosynthesize as well. And so if they are able to be exposed to, to sun rays or to sunlight, 
then that gives them a little bit of an extra boost. So that would be one of the disadvantages from terracotta pots is that because they're opaque, they don't get the same level of sun exposure, which in some cases your roots will look white. So if your roots look white, not a big deal. It just means that they're not getting as much sun, but as long as they're firm, as long as they're turgid, um, then you're, you're good to go. So I think it's really, it, I think it's really about personal preference and, and whatever is going to be best for your lifestyle and what you're, what you're trying to do with your orchids. Now let's talk reblooming. This must be a major concern of yours as an orchid rescuer, but yes. I've had a message from Lucy who's had an orchid for 14 years. This is a long time. That's a long time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a long time to be looking after this plant and it has not flowered in 14 years and she's only got seriously into plants in the last couple of years so obviously she's trying to flex her plant parent muscles here so that's great how can she get this darn plant to flower terry what can she do so a a few things and and really like the biggest thing that i've learned over the last few years is that it is absolutely a hundred percent about the plant environment so now if your orchid like we talked about earlier if your orchid has a good root system a good pretty consistent leaf growth and you're not growing leaves that that look diseased or look like they're not healthy you should be able to get your orchid to flower again so one of the things that i always am kind of tinkering with and kind of playing around with with my orchids is their environment and generally speaking You want to get bright, indirect light, typically in a east-facing window or west-facing window. I prefer east-facing windows because they get kind of that early morning sun, which is a little bit gentler, whereas the western-facing windows, the the sun is a little bit harsher at the end of the day and in the afternoon and and could increase your risk of of, sunburning your leaves and and, uh, sunburning your orchid. The other thing that you want to think about as well is is the temperature. Orchids do really, really great in temperate temperatures, typically between 60 to 85. Some of them can go up to 90 degrees, but you typically don't want them to be in super hot temperatures or super cold temperatures for extended periods of time. The other thing that can really help to spark your flowering or, or to really send your, your orchid into a kind of reblooming um, cycle is creating a temperature difference between daytime temperatures and nighttime temperatures. And, you know, when I first found out about this phenomenon of, you know, creating essentially a 10 to 20 degree difference between daytime and nighttime temperatures, I kind of stumbled upon it. It actually happened to one of my orchids last summer that I rescued and I was quarantining it on our balcony. Um, you know, just because it did have a few pests that I needed to get rid of, but over the course of that two or three months that it was out on our balcony, there was literally about an eight to 10 degree difference between daytime temperatures and nighttime temperatures. Um, and it ended up reblooming in about like two months after I rescued it. Um, just, and I think that is the only, I wasn't fertilizing it. I was just watering it consistently. So the, so really the only variable that changed for that orchid was that temperature change. So if you can find, if you're in a position to create that type of temperature change, some people do it with, you know, putting it outside during the day and then bringing it in inside at night and then setting their thermostat at a particular temperature. 
to recreate that. So that's that's another thing that you can do. And then the final thing is fertilizing. So you want to use a fertilizer that has a fair amount of phosphorus in it because phosphorus is really the compound that is going to help to really push your orchid into a flowering state. I can't imagine having a plant for 14 <laughs> yeah. years that hasn't flowered. That That is dedication for you. I'm not sure I'd have... I'd have probably got uh, thrown it out by now, but well done, Lynn, for sticking with it. And um, I think that, yes, that's all great advice. And hopefully that will bring that plant back into bloom. And that would be very exciting after such a long time. Now we're on to the next controversial subject with orchids, which is what do I do with that flower stem once those flowers have finally withered? Do we leave it alone? Do we cut it back? Do we cut it to the base? There seems to be all different kind of advice out there. And Jonathan wants to know uh, your take on this. So for me personally, I like to take a relatively conservative approach to cutting back uh, my flowering spikes. And I have actually have a really good example of why it could be beneficial for you to take a more conservative approach. So typically I will, once my, once my orchids or drop their flowers, I will just continue to water consistently, do any fertilizing that makes sense at that stage of the game. I'm using a pretty balanced fertilizer, either either a 20 like a 20-20-20 orchid food kind of fertilizer. And essentially, I just kind of let the orchid do its thing. And just like any other plant, the orchid, it's going to do what it needs to do to continue to survive based on, you know, the amount of nutrients and, and the amount of water that you're giving it. And so as the spike starts to brown, I'll let that tissue demarcate and then I'll prune from there. And what I found is that typically I can get a rebloom within a matter of months I've noticed that those blooms don't typically last quite as long as a bloom from an original flowering spike from the center of the plant, but you can typically, you know, increase your chances of getting a rebloom. And what I found most recently, I have a I have a, an orchid that bloomed last year and it had two flowering spikes. One of those flowering spikes completely died, so I, I pruned that one all the way back down to the bottom as the tissue declared itself, but one of the spikes stayed intact and basically grew another flowering spike and is in bloom. And then as the existing flowering spike was blooming, a new flowering spike actually grew from the bottom and is now growing. So, I I mean, I don't know how many flowers I'm going to get from that. So I think that particular example echoes or, or kind of puts a feather in my cap for taking a more conservative approach to cutting back the flower stems. But, I mean, to be completely honest... If you wanted to, you know, as soon as your orchid drops its flowers, if you wanted to cut it back, there's nothing wrong with that. Because, you know, I've I've heard it this way. Orchids are low-key, like, suicidal in the sense that as long as there is a flowering spike there, they will do everything they can to flower, even if it means that it, that it will eventually kill them. <laughs> Which is like that's dedication. Wow, like so so just know that your orchids are working hard for you, even if they don't seem to be. So there is reason to say, okay, yeah, maybe I should cut down this flowering spike, especially if it's like in constant, constant bloom, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But so far I haven't noticed any ill effects of me 
leaving those flowering spikes and letting them kind of die off on their own as they want to and then just kind of pruning back as the tissue declares itself. The urge to flower is strong which is great and I mean the wonderful thing about orchids is just how long those flowers last as well they you do get a lot of uh, bang for your buck as it were which is uh, which is a very good thing. I think that has exhausted my list of questions but I just want to ask you I wanted you to tell me the story of your most spectacular orchid rescue, like zero to hero, started off really bad, but you've got the most amazing orchid at the end of it. Actually, it's it's the story that I was telling you about earlier. So Chad, which was an orchid that was gifted to me by a friend, was super dehydrated on his way out. And a friend gave it to me like kind of as like a last ditch, like, can you save this? And I was like, I'll give it my best shot. And actually, this was the first orchid that I tried that the the kind of the tea bag method or the, the rehydration technique on. And yeah, I mean, I wasn't really sure that it was going to work. I wasn't really sure how successful it was going to be. I thought for sure that it was probably going to die. It also had a few pests on it when I got it as well. And so... I took a stab at it and it was, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, let's see what happens. And yeah, sure enough, after about a week or so of doing my my daily soaks and, and letting it air out overnight, it started to perk up. The leaves started to get more firm. I started to notice even some root growth like while it was sitting in the solution. And uh, and then I repotted it. And then after I repotted it, there's still kind of whenever you repot a plant, there's always like that first you know, month or so where you're kind of like, I don't know, is it going to make it? Is it going to make it? And so I was just making sure I was keeping a really, really close eye on it. And, And sure enough, after about a month or so, I started to see some really good new root growth. And about two or three months after that, I started to notice the a flowering spike coming out. And and this was like a huge deal for me because prior to this orchid, I had never produced a flowering spike from the core or the center of the plant. So I had only been able to re to create reblooms from existing flowering spikes. And so this was like a huge like this was like a huge deal for me. Like this basically was like, okay, like I can really do this for real now. <laughs> you know, like I I've I've done every step of the process of bringing an orchid to life. And uh yeah, and just continued to kind of nurse it and be intentional with it. And now it is has the most like beautiful purple flowers, just like this deep kind of purple fuchsia uh, color. And it's really, really happy and doing really well. So so big shout out to Chad doing his thing. Why did you choose the name Chad? This just gives you an indication of how how bad they were when I got them. So this this her, my our, our friend, her name's Amy. Uh, she works with my wife. Uh, she actually gave me two orchids and she named them and and I and so I was like, you know what I'll give you you have the honors of naming them and so she said she named them Chad and Brad because they were sad so <laughs> when when I got them so so it was sad Brad and sad Chad and so now now they're both happy so so yeah I'm still working on getting uh, Brad to to flower but he's doing really really well growing a new leaf right now growing air roots like crazy. And uh, yeah, so 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 yeah, so that's that's cool. Oh, that's awesome! I'm loving the names Chad and Brad. <laughs> I was <laughs> I had some weird election thing going on where I was thinking maybe it's to do with hanging chads, like it's a plant that's hanging down. <laughs> therefore, it's I don't know. I I was my, my associ- free association was happening there. <laughs> But it's been really great to talk to you, Terry, and thank you so much for answering all of those 
questions about orchid rescues. And hopefully we can, I'm going to be looking out now. I'm going to be searching for half dead orchids that I can revive now, creeping around behind apartment blocks. (laughs) I'm going to get myself in trouble. I usually do. It's fantastic to get your inspirational advice and tips, Terry. So thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jane, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, I I really appreciate the opportunity and, and an opportunity to engage with you and engage with your listeners. So this has been really fun. Thank you. Terry's YouTube channel is Black Thumb TV and you'll also find him on the TikTok on the same name. Do check out the show notes for all his links and info and pictures of the legendary Chad. That is all for this week's show. Thank you for joining me. I'll be back next Friday for more plant-based entertainment. heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, Quasi Motion by Kevin McLeod, and Time to Move and Motivate by The Insider. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit janebarone.com for details.